Hello, Boulder and the wider world. This is Philip Ogren from the Sharing Boulder podcast with an update on the quilt. The quilt is done. It measures 87 inches long and 66 inches wide, and it is a hefty and warm quilt featuring a polyester fleece layer I found at Goodwill, which is sandwiched between the mostly denim face and a cotton sheet, also found at Goodwill, for the back. In the past, I have gathered denim jeans from family, friends, and thrift stores and cut them up into squares, but it is a long and tedious process to get a nice-sized stack that is big enough for a quilt. This time, I bought pre-cut denim squares from a woman in Chernihiv, Ukraine, by way of Etsy.com. I spent $120 on this time-saving indulgence. I hope she felt good about the transaction and was not gouged too badly by the e-commerce platform. I found a couple of white cotton shower curtains that I repurposed for the white squares in the middle. The colored squares are cut from fat quarters that I bought new on Amazon. This was another expensive time-saving extravagance that added another $80 to my expenses. I frequently look for interesting fabrics at thrift stores and repurpose them, but I had recently given up sewing and had donated and discarded my random piles of future projects. Judge me if you will, but it was liberating to let it all go, and then subsequently use mostly prepared materials from my first back from retirement project. The fat quarters are too thin to be used with denim, and so I added additional fabric to the backs of those pieces from miscellaneous scraps I had lying around. The quilt is double-stitched throughout, but unfortunately, my 70s-era Olive Green Ward's brand signature sewing machine that I'm using doesn't have a double-stitch feature. So I single-stitched everything twice. One of the easiest things to get wrong is to lay out the squares incorrectly or sew them together in the wrong pattern or with the wrong orientation. So I drew out what the quilt would look like on a piece of graph paper, and I carefully prepared the rows by stacking the squares used in each. But that didn't stop me from messing up the white squares on one of the rows, and I had to redo some of the work. When I finally finished the face of the quilt, I took a picture of it and sent it to David. As soon as I did, I started second-guessing the whole project. Because I cheated on the shape of the letter C in the middle, so that the corners of the C align where the white meets the blue instead of extending a few degrees into the white middle like the official Colorado flag. Oh, by the way, the quilt is patterned after the Colorado flag, which is an iconic red letter C, which engulfs a yellow circle in front of three wide horizontal stripes of blue and white. The C on the quilt looks a bit more like a colorful Pac-Man or parrot's head. I thought it might look better if I added some red and yellow borders to make the C pop out better. I spent an embarrassingly long time fashioning trim for this accoutrement and sewing it on. And when it was done, it looked worse than before, and I ripped it out very carefully, which also took an embarrassingly long time. This gave me plenty of time to contemplate retiring from sewing again. It also left behind tracks of tiny holes from the sewing machine needle, but don't worry. They went away when I washed the quilt after it was all done. Note to buyer. This quilt should be extremely durable, but wash on the delicate cycle in cold water for good measure anyways. But what does it all mean? What profound life lessons can I impart? How can a quilt help untangle the mysteries of the universe?
I'm glad you asked. The symbolism of a quilt as a ready-to-use metaphor should be self-evident. A few years ago, I worshipped with the Unitarian Universalists for a few seasons. As a religion, they are pretty short on dogma that must be strictly observed, with one exception. At least once a month, the metaphor of a tapestry must be invoked. In fact, I don't think I've ever heard the word tapestry outside the context of church. Anyways, a quilt is like a tapestry, in very much the same way that a simile is like a metaphor. And so it probably doesn't need to be spelled out here. But this sharing boulder extra is all about metaphors. So let's get this ball rolling like a balloon barreling down a grassy knoll. The quilt is loosely designed after the Colorado flag, which is a frequent symbol of status depression to some. But here I'm going for a more general appeal to the home state of our fair city of Boulder. The notion of diversity is captured by the fact that I've incorporated all 11 colors of the Progress Pride flag, and then some, and used a combination of new and used cotton fabrics. Quilting is frequently thought of as a female activity that appeals to feminine sensibilities and preferences. I like to think that with its rugged construction and use of heavy denim, that the quilt exudes a fair bit of masculinity as well. I'm really going for a wide appeal for any gender here, but I don't know how to stretch out the symbolism of a quilt much further than that. And as far as metaphors to live by go, it's not really that great of one. I mean, I'd really like to make it seem unspeakably profound in order to help get the bidding war started. But at the end of the day, it's just a humble quilt, and it is unlikely to bring divine revelation to its future owner. You've made it this far into the episode, so you're probably hoping I have some humdingers to share with you. Here they come. The first metaphor I'd like to refer to as throwing starfish, and it requires the retelling of an old parable. You will probably recognize it, and it will probably make you roll your eyes. Go ahead and stretch your eyes. But know that if you make it through the telling of this parable, you can warm your hands next to the searing heat of my critique of how widely applicable it is to our culture. A child and their grandfather were walking along the beach. The child ran ahead and began throwing starfish into the ocean that had been stranded by the low tide. The grandfather caught up with the child and said, Sweet child, don't you see how many stranded starfish there are? You can't possibly throw them all back into the ocean. What difference does it make? The child reached down, picked up a starfish, and threw it back into the ocean and said, Grandpa, to that starfish, it makes all the difference. I heard that parable at church when I was a child, and I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to throw starfish, as many as I can whenever I get the chance for the rest of my life. And I think that is pretty sweet. And of course, I think we should all throw starfish as the Spirit moves us to. And I would never discourage or disparage anyone for trying to make a difference in the life of someone else. But on the balance, this is a pretty shitty metaphor, even if, even if damnably apt. Especially when it comes to public policy. We live in an age of GoFundMe healthcare where large percentages of our neighbors go without health insurance. When catastrophe strikes, we turn to social media and the generosity of our fellow citizens to get help. We say, I am a starfish gasping for breath. Somebody please throw me back into the ocean. And if you can tell your story well enough and get it to go viral, 
then you may find yourself buoyantly swimming in an embarrassment of riches as donations pour in. If you can't, then you might face financial disaster or even die. Governments, institutions, and social structures, more generally, should not be in the business of throwing starfish. Collectively, we should be putting our energy into structural change. But in the area of housing policy, it seems we can't seem to do more than gather up our energy to throw a few starfish back into the ocean from time to time. We create a housing project here and another one there, each time battling uphill against long odds and with great heroic effort. And each time a few starfish make it back into the ocean and thrive whilst the rest gasp for lack of suitable habitat. Throwing starfish as public policy is especially problematic through the lens of white privilege. When we could be pouring our energy into structural and comprehensive change, we instead congratulate ourselves for the starfish we've saved and then throw up our hands in righteous bewilderment when we contemplate the work that remains. Unfortunately, the throwing starfish metaphor falls apart when you try to adapt it to structural change, so it's not going to help guide us towards a positive vision of where we need to go. My next metaphor is what I like to call Amway economics, and is an excellent complement to throwing starfish. I would like to think of Amway as a crazy market networking business that was really big in the 1990s that has long since run its course and fallen by the wayside. A quick Google search suggests it remains a retail behemoth, and unless they have profoundly changed their business model, this suggests that listeners may still have friends and family who would like to help you realize your entrepreneurial and financial dreams beyond your wildest imaginings through Amway. It is, after all, very difficult to kill a religious organization once it gains a certain critical mass. I briefly caught the Amway fever circa 1991 when I was still a teenager due to the influence of a close friend who was a bit older and way cooler than me. I went to a few seminars and rallies. I listened to motivational cassette tapes and I even tried selling some of their products. It was very exciting. I wish I could listen to one of those cassette tapes now because they were so entertaining and interesting and compelling. I suspect they would still be a captivating and entertaining listen all these years later, especially from the perspective of a middle-aged dude who's been around the block a few times. Here's how Amway works for those who don't know. First you join, then you sell products and get a commission, then you get your friends to join, and they sell products and get a commission, but you also get a commission on the products they sell. They get their friends to join, and so on, and you start building up an entire organization of distributors from which you collect some percentage of all the products that your organization sells. It's a bit like a pyramid scheme, except that there's actually quality products that are being sold, not just membership fees, so it's all legal. But to explain Amway like this is like a clinical description of sex. It doesn't capture the excitement and fervor of the thing. We don't have time for the romance novel description here. But Amway is like a religion that requires conversion, discipleship, evangelism, and generally speaking, bugging the shit out of everybody you have ever known to join you and help you make boatloads of money. Because with Amway, you can achieve your financial goals. How do we know this? Because anyone can succeed with Amway, which means by deduction that you can too. How do we know that anyone can succeed with Amway? Listen to this cassette tape for the answer. Spoiler alert, the narrator, the narrator was just like you, found Amway, 
and now they don't even pack clothes when they jet set. They confidently walk off the airplane and buy whatever the fuck they need when they get there. But the young economist in me couldn't get past a single fact. While it definitely seemed true that anyone could succeed in this business if they fanatically pursued it with extreme dedication, it also seemed equally true that not everyone could succeed in this business. Now, a devotee has a quick and easy answer to this. Of course not everyone will succeed because lots of people are quitters. Are you a quitter? But that misses the bigger point. It actually simply isn't possible for everyone to build up an Amway organization and make millions of dollars. Don't expect this to be a compelling argument to an Amway distributor, but hopefully I don't have to explain why we can't all be individual retail giants to this audience. This distinction between anyone and everyone is the key to Amway economics, which unfortunately is a prevalent way of thinking about any number of our city's problems. Think about how we treat a homeless person. We have a tendency to think that any homeless person could possibly seek out the help they need, get clean, and find the housing they need in the current system. But given that we've kicked out the bottom several rungs of the housing ladder, it takes incredible dedication and persistence, not to mention natural leaping ability to get a foothold. We use this as a kind of moral cudgel because if someone can't find their way out of homelessness, then they must be quitters or morally compromised somehow. But if you take the epidemiologist perspective of homelessness, it is not a question of individual moral turpitude, but rather a system that is failing a vulnerable population. Perhaps any given homeless individual could navigate and succeed in this system, but that doesn't mean that it's likely that every homeless person will. To eradicate this plague, we need systemic change, not more finger wagging or encouragement. Amway economics is especially prevalent among single-family homeowners. They hear the cries for housing reform and they think, those underachieving complainers, they should roll up their sleeves and start competing for a spot on the team. Anyone can buy a house in Boulder if they work hard and play their cards right. But clearly, with the jobs to houses and balance, it should be obvious that not everyone who works in Boulder can also live here. There just aren't enough homes to go around. I think in most cases, Amway economics is unfair in the extreme and requires only just a bit of thinking outside your own little box that you've painted the world into. If you are an Amway member and you aren't making much money at it, the good news is that there are lots of other rewarding careers that pay well. But to cure homelessness and address the housing shortage, we need politicians and a citizenry that are willing to change the game in a comprehensive way. This would include building a lot of entry-level housing of all kinds, ADUs, studio apartments, and other kinds of affordable housing. It's my unshakable belief that no homeless person would ever live in such structures if we built them. And that's because they would have homes, of course. Let's quit claiming that anyone can live in Boulder and make it possible for everyone to live here. Wait, wait, wait. Do I really mean everyone? Well, yes and no. Let's circle back to this question in a bit. So, if throwing starfish in Amway economics aptly describes the dysfunction of our current systems, then what is a good metaphor that we can use to describe the healthy and abundant city that we want? I am open to suggestions here, but my favorite metaphor right now is the good party. 
This was first brought to my attention by the book Strong Towns by Chuck Marone. Quote, Consider a dinner party where each invited guest brings more food and beverage than they themselves consume. With each person that shows up, there is a wider selection of food and drink. The conversation grows, and the party simply gets better. The logical thing to do as host of this good party is to open the doors as wide as possible and invite more people in. The more, the merrier. What about a party where each invited guest consumes more food and beverage than they themselves bring to the party? With each person that shows up, the supplies are dwindling. This is rapidly turning into a bad party. As host, the logical thing to do is to bar the door and not let anyone else in. Traditional development patterns were a good party. While each neighborhood began modestly as a collection of small investments, each new arrival simply made things better. Not only did new construction improve underlying land values in a virtuous cycle of growth, stagnation, and renewal, but it improved the capacity of the neighborhood to take collective action. End quote. Of course, a party can go bad in the other direction. Friends call their friends who call their friends. The music gets louder, the party gets wilder, pretty soon you have a raving block party on your hands. A party can definitely get too big for my taste. I think of Manhattan this way. It seems like a pretty wild party that I would definitely like to experience, but not every weekend. Manhattan, like Boulder, is about 25 square miles, but has 1.7 million people, which is approximately 15 times more people than Boulder. The good news is that Boulder could easily double, triple, or even quadruple in population and still be nothing like the orgy that is Manhattan. We'd be more like a good party city like Copenhagen, a city that is about four times the density of Boulder and widely admired around the world for its happy and productive people. My diagnosis is that Boulder is a bad party city of the first kind, where the hosts are jealously guarding a dwindling cooler of beer, and each newcomer is treated as a competition to be wary of. And yet, we simultaneously imagine that our party is bursting at the seams, and that if anyone else shows up, then all hell will break loose into a wild orgy, where piles of people will be having unprotected sex and snorting coke right there on the living room rug. How can we have such cognitive disconnect? Well, it's because a living room party is not the right metaphor for Boulder. Instead, imagine a party that is held in a large parking lot, and instead of getting out of your car, you mix and mingle by driving around and talking through the windows of your car. The parking lot is full, everyone is idling, we are choking on our own exhaust, and nobody wants more cars at the party. This is what Boulder is like. We don't want more people because we don't want their cars because the parking lot is full and we just don't have room for more cars. Because Boulder is a city that is completely handed over to cars. And if you've ever driven around Boulder at rush hour, then you might think of my parking lot party as a kind of literal metaphor. So here's my idea for how to make Boulder a good party. Let's get out of our cars. Let's allow for dense infill, including ADUs, duplexes, triplexes, quadplexes, row houses, townhomes, and even apartment buildings. Let's have mixed-use development, starting with corner markets on the ends of residential streets. Let's reclaim asphalt. No more 40-foot-wide streets as a general rule. Let's get around by walking, biking, and transit as much as possible. In fact, let's have entire pedestrian districts where cars are extremely few and far between. Let's share cars. Let's stop idling. Let's stop choking on our own exhaust. 
and let's welcome people to the party. Everyone, the more the merrier. Let's get to where we are a world-class, good party city filled with walkable neighborhoods and highly socially connected but low-carbon footprint residents. Once we get a good party going, then let's worry about the as-of-right-now remote possibility of it turning into an out-of-control rave. I'd like to close by reading from the epilogue of The Story of Stuff by Annie Leonard, which I highly recommend reading. It's 2030. There is the sound of laughter and birdsong here in the city. Children everywhere are playing in the streets, just out of the line of vision of grown-ups hanging laundry to dry in the breeze and tending to the vegetable gardens planted in former lots and lawns. The high-density housing is built with community life in mind, bicycle paths, shaded gathering places, fruit and vegetable stands, and cozy cafes fill the streets. The air is clean nowadays for two main reasons. The first is that personal cars have almost totally disappeared, while the punctual public transit system now serves every corner of the city powered on clean, renewable energy. The second is that polluting industries have become extinct, driven out by the one-two-three punch of high taxes on carbon, waste, and pollutants, the high price of virgin raw materials, and government incentives for clean industries. The whole pace of life is more relaxed. Slow and low impact is the new mantra. Incomes are lower, but we are rich in something that many of us had never experienced before, time. There is far more leisure time. Levels of obesity, depression, suicide, and cancer are down. Library and civic memberships are up, as are basketball, soccer, bocce clubs, and stand-up comedy. While people spend less time working and watching TV alone, they spend far more time engaged in civic activities. People are voting in record numbers, as well as volunteering and campaigning for the things they care about. Citizens, not big corporations, have the greatest influence. Now that government is accessible, inviting, and responsive, there are nearly infinite possibilities for ways to make life even better. A sense of optimism and hope prevails. End quote. That sounds like my kind of party. Thank you.